If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 10 and stand as you find that. Acts chapter 10. I'll read beginning in verse 1. Now there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him and said to him, Cornelius, And fixing his gaze upon him, and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had departed, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier, of those who were in constant attendance upon him. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. I'll pray. God, I thank you for your word again and for all that you've recorded here for us to profit from. And once again, God, we just ask that you administer to us that by your spirit, God, we would be taught of you and that your good work, Lord, as you alone know needs to happen in each of our hearts uniquely would take place. We want to just be surrendered to you and yielded, God, as we come before you and just say, God, just speak to us, work in us of of your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, this is a a very, very important part of of Scripture, not just of Acts, but just of all of Scripture. Chapter 10 and the conversion of Cornelius and on into chapter 11 is highly significant. And um, it is also loaded with some potential landmines. And I, I sometimes think when I go to a passage like this, uh, man, if, if I ever, um, you know, I won't have to now, hopefully, go to war, I think one of the most miserable jobs, uh, stressful jobs anybody can have would be those guys that had to clear the beaches of the mines. Um, and there were guys that had that job. They were the mine sweepers, and they had to just slowly advance where they knew there were mines and dig them up so other people could come in. And this is a passage that actually has a lot of mines in it, um, and it's my job um, to get to go through here and hope nobody gets blown up in the process, myself especially. But it's a very important passage here, and, 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 and the flow of Acts, one of the things that we've seen is how God has been using Peter, not alone, There are many, many people that the Lord's using, and thousands of people have been coming to Christ. And now when we come to Acts chapter 10, it's about 10 years since Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God was first poured out upon um, the Jewish people who were there at the temple. And God had said, Jesus had said to Peter during his earthly ministry that he was giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter. And that's a difficult passage to understand what exactly did Jesus mean. But if we look at Acts, it seems to be what Jesus was saying is that Peter would be the key guy that God would use to see the Spirit of God um, poured out upon the new believers. And so in Acts chapter 2, Peter's the guy who's standing up and speaking as the Spirit of God is being poured out upon the Jewish believers. 
And then we see that Philip goes to the Samaritans, and Samaritans are getting saved, but they're not yet receiving of the Spirit of God. So, and so God sends Peter to the Samaritans, and Peter shows up and begins to preach, and the people have the Spirit of God poured out on them. And now we come to chapter 10, and we have a group of Gentiles. We've seen um, the Ethiopian eunuch saved, who is also a Gentile, but there was no mention there of a group being saved and the doorway to the Gentiles being opened. That seems to be now. And so now God is going to use Peter once again and for the final time to see the Spirit of God poured out on the third group of people, and that is Gentiles. So first the Jew, then the Samaritan, and now the Gentile. And so the reason God is using one person instead of three seems to be because God is wanting us to see it is one church. It is one work. We are all one body of Christ. And so God's using this one man, Peter, in order to, 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 for everybody to see this isn't three different works. This is one work of God, and God is bringing us all together in Christ. So that brings us to somebody we never would have heard of. And, and certainly Peter would have never heard of this man named Cornelius, who is a centurion. A centurion was a man in the Roman army who was in charge of about 100 soldiers. And, and he is, um, a, must have been a, a very well-respected man among the centurions because he's been assigned to the provincial capital, which is Caesarea of that province of Judea. And so there are other centurions who would have been in this province, but were not at the capital. Because he's serving in the capital, he probably was one of the more distinguished of the centurions in that region. And he's a, a unique man. He is a God-fearing man, which is um, amazing in itself. We know from Daniel's prophecies that, that the kingdom of Rome is the last of the four major prophecies that were predicted. The first was the Babylonians, and they were represented by gold. And then there were the Medo-Persians, represented by silver. And then there were the Greeks, represented by bronze. And now the Romans, represented by iron. And one of the things that people have noted about those four metals is as you progress, they become less valuable but stronger. And many historians believe that is a picture of the military might of, and, and the general character of those societies. That the society of the Babylonians was a more refined, it was a better society in many respects than the ones that came after. But militarily, it was weaker than the Medo-Persians. And the militarily, they were weaker than the Greeks. And militarily, the Romans were the strongest yet. Iron is the strongest of those four metals. Well, you don't become the strongest military on earth that the world has yet to see without being a bit brutal. And, so, and the centurions were the guys who were principally responsible for handing out the brutality. And now you got a guy who who truly has a heart for God. This is amazing. I happened to just be flipping through the channels the other day, and I went to the History Channel, and it was a World War II documentary, and I just caught just five minutes there, 
And, and, and it was talking about how the Nazis had Sicily. We invaded Sicily. They went over to the mainland. And so we came onto the mainland. And as we were liberating people in Italy, there was one Italian man, older man, who was trying to describe the Nazis in his broken English. And he got across, the Nazis, he said, are all animals. Now, he, he genuinely felt that. But we know that's not true. Not every single Nazi was, was acting like an animal. But many of them did. You could have said that about Rome. That's how the Jewish people would have felt about these occupying force living in their country. These people are animals. In fact, they called the Gentiles in general dogs. And they hated the Romans. And yet Cornelius is an exception. He is an amazing man. And so we're told this by him in verse 2. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household. So he's influenced his entire household. This doesn't mean wives and children. It certainly means that, but it means everybody who was under his sphere of influence, everybody who was part of his household administration. They all feared God because of this man's influence. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people. He's not known for his brutality. He's known for his compassion and his generosity. And he prayed to God continually. He is not saved. And he knew it. If you look over at chapter 11, verse 14... Peter is recounting what the angel has said to Cornelius. Just looking, picking it up in verse 13. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here. And this is the key verse. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. All of his household feared God, and none of his household was saved. Do you see the connection there? So can you be an unbeliever and fear God? Yes. Does fearing God make you a Christian? No. Okay, and so this is very clear here. Cornelius and all of his household feared God, and Cornelius and none of his household were saved. And they all knew it. So here's the first point of application here. You can be a God-fearing person, devout in your beliefs. You can be a person who gives money and a person who prays continually and not have a relationship with God. None of those things make you saved but rather it is placing your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, for eternal life. And the good thing about Cornelius is he knew his religious activity did not grant him eternal life. You cannot earn your way to heaven. And if anybody knew that, it was Cornelius. Now we're beginning to see what an important figure this guy is. There are many people today that would say, that a person who is unsaved cannot 
live the life that this man lived because of how they define total depravity. And they would say that total depravity means that you are dead like a corpse in relation to God. Because the Bible does say that when you are unsaved, when you are out, when you do not have a relationship with God, that you are spiritually dead. We have all been born spiritually dead. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll look at that maybe in a minute, there's twice there in the introduction of chapter 2 of Ephesians that it says we are spiritually dead. But let me be clear. There is no place in the Bible that says we are cadavers or we are corpses or that we have no ability to respond to God. Now, I believe, and basically everyone does, that every single aspect of our humanity has been impacted by sin. In the totality of who we are, we have been impacted by sin. But I do not believe that means that a person who is dead spiritually is unable to respond to God. Cornelius is proof, positive, that a dead man spiritually can have a devotion to God, a fear of God, pray to God, and be heard by God. And he's only one of many. We'll also see that there's Lydia, another unbeliever who is called a God-fearing woman. In the book of Acts, there's the Bereans, unsaved Jewish people who are searching the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true or not. And then we have Paul when he stood before the Athenians and he, and he spoke about how God recognizes that men do, in fact, grope for him. But the two clearest cases to me of what an unsaved person is capable of doing, let me rephrase that, of what a spiritually dead person is capable of doing, are Adam and our Lord Jesus Christ. Adam sinned in the garden, right? He ate of that fruit, and he wasn't supposed to. It was sin. And then in his now fallen state of being dead spiritually and separated from his God, he's talking to God. He's able to hear God. He's able to understand God. He knows exactly what he did. He's ashamed of what he did. He feels guilt over what he did. All of those are spiritual things. He was not unresponsive to God. He was not lacking in the ability to understand and to respond. Now, why did I mention Jesus? Because for three hours while he hung on the cross, he died spiritually. And that doesn't mean he ceased to exist, and it doesn't mean he became a spiritual cadaver. It means for three hours he was separated from his father. He was spiritually dead. When he died for you and me, he did not just die physically. He died spiritually. And during that three hours, he was aware of his separation. And he was grieving over his separation. And he was crying out to God in his separation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So these two, Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross 
show us, in addition to Cornelius and Lydia and many others, what, an, what a person who is dead spiritually is capable of. There is no place in the Bible that says a spiritually dead person is a cadaver. There is no place in the Bible that says a spiritually dead person cannot believe in God. That is man's theology. It is not the Word of God. Now I blow up, right? First landmine. Now, there are a lot of landmines here. Not trying to be controversial, but just I don't want to be evasive either. I want to be clear and just draw what's here in the text. So we know that Cornelius sends for Peter. Okay, and so just to read further, chapter 10, verse 9, and on the next day, so this was a day and a half journey from, from where Peter was and where um, Cornelius was. It took him a day, a day and a half to make this journey. And so the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, the city God was preparing Peter for the coming of these three men, two soldiers and a messenger. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, that would have been noon, and he was hungry, and he was desiring to eat, but they were making preparations down in the house. He fell into a trance, and he beheld the sky opened up, and a certain object, like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up in the sky, and Peter's left going, what in the world is this about? Middle of the day, he's wide awake, he's hungry, and he has a vision about food. Okay? And that's, you know, I can say, well, often, who doesn't think about food when they're hungry? And so but the food that comes to mind is not food he's ever eaten before. He's a good Jewish man. And here comes this big sheet loaded full of food, and most of it is stuff that he's not supposed to eat. There would have been snakes in there. Can't eat snakes. There would have been shrimp in there. Can't eat shrimp if you're a Jew. There would have been pigs in there. Can't eat pigs if you're a Jew. Man. Now, I'm sure there were no cats in there. But anyway, I mean, uh, there are all these different animals, and, and God is saying, eat it. And he's going, this is blowing his mind. And he has spent his whole life, and he has never once had anything come into his mouth that he wasn't supposed to eat. And now God's saying three times, don't consider unclean what I have cleansed. So that's the second big thing here. What does that mean? In what sense are, and he's going to make the application here to Gentiles, and that's going to be very clear. God has cleansed the Gentiles. Well, in what sense has he cleansed them? Let's keep reading. We're not come back to this. And so this happens three times, and then Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision with which he had seen might be. Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate right at that time. And calling out, they were asking, where is Simon, who is also called Peter? 
In verse 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But arise, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so he invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Six brethren, we're going to find out. Now you have to have, according to Jewish law, two witnesses for every event that takes place. So he takes three times as many witnesses as he needs. He really wants to cover his bases here. So six men go with Peter. And then it says, on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Again, so they traveled one whole day, and now the next day they finally come to Caesarea. And he goes into where Cornelius is waiting together with his relatives and his friends. And it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man, and just a man. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call, that, that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So God says, Do not consider unclean what I have cleansed. He wasn't talking about food, though it did apply to that. He's talking about human beings. Never consider another human being as unclean in reference to yourself. Okay. So that's what God was talking about. Peter has understood it. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for you. And so I asked for what reason you have sent me. And Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. And so I sent to you immediately and you have been kind enough to come now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And opening his mouth, Peter be, um, said, and he begins his sermon. Now let me get back to this other landmine, this question here. Do not consider unclean what God has cleansed. Now he's talking about people. So in what sense has God cleansed the Gentiles? Does that mean they are saved? No. We've already read in chapter 11, Cornelius and his household were not saved. So cleansing in this context does not equate with salvation. So a person can have been cleansed by God and not be saved. Everybody on the right track with me? Everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay, now. That shouldn't surprise us if we understand our Bibles and the Old Testament. All saved people have been cleansed, okay? But you can be cleansed and not be saved. If you're a Christian, you have been cleansed. If you're not a Christian, there is a sense in which you have been cleansed, okay? So cleansing does not have to do only with salvation. For example... In the Old Testament, 
all the furniture, all the furniture of the temple had been cleansed, correct? But it wasn't saved. So everything in the temple was cleansed by blood, but none of the furniture had been saved. In the same way, we find in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is, is addressing particularly Christian women who are married to unbelieving men. And he says, don't leave them, because your presence in that household sanctifies your husband and your children, or in other words, cleanses them. Sanctify, to sanctify is to be set apart, or to be made holy, or to be cleansed. But he wasn't saying, Paul was not saying, that your presence in that household saves them. There's a difference between being cleansed and being saved. So he was not at all saying just by having, being married to a Christian, that means your husband is now saved. No way. But the hope is they would be saved because of your presence in that home. I believe all people have been cleansed in the sense that all people have had all of their sin paid for. Jesus did not pay for the sin of only the elect. Jesus paid for the sin of all people. And if all sin has been paid for, then we have been cleansed in that sense. But there's nothing in the Bible that says everyone who has had all their sin paid for is also saved. And that's where the confusion comes, because people want to think, well, if my sin has been paid for, then I am saved. No. Now, one illustration of this is, even if having your sin paid for did equal forgiveness, and I don't believe that it does. That's where I'm at right now. But even if it did, if paid sin meant forgiveness, your salvation is more than forgiveness. It is way more than forgiveness. So if I were to write up on a chalkboard all of your sins and tell you your sin has been paid for and forgiven and I erase it from the chalkboard, that doesn't save you because you, have, you are still under the dominion and power of sin even if your sin has been forgiven. And you're not saved until the dominion and power of sin is broken. And that only happens when you are given a new heart, a new spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. That's Ezekiel 36. So our salvation is much bigger than the forgiveness of sin. So even if we could argue the payment of sin equals forgiveness of sin, you can't necessarily assume that forgiveness means salvation. Now, there are many verses that do say Forgive, those who are forgiven have been saved. So that's why I'm not going there. And I, because I think that's a, that's a, that's a leap too far. What I, what I can say, I believe safely, is to have your sin paid for is a separate thing than having your sin forgiven. There is, in other words, here's the thing. Let me put it this way. There is no condition upon you having your sin paid for. Because it's already done. And whether you believe it or not, it's already done. Jesus paid for your sin. All sin. 
So you can walk up to anybody on the street and say to them, just want you to know something. I got some good news for you. Your sin, all of your sin, has been paid for. Now, that doesn't mean they're saved, you see? But it is, and whether they believe it or not, they go, that's crazy. You go, sorry you think that, but it's true. All your sin has been paid for. But they're not saved because of that fact. Now they have to do something with that fact. And that's where faith comes in. And that's what Peter's going to mention here in his sermon. So let's keep reading his sermon. So Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Now for several days he was... Whoop, I'm in the wrong place. That's chapter 9. Verse um, 34. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now, um, let me come back to that in a second. The, another landmine. The... The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know that the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed, you know of, of Jesus of Nazareth, and, how, and God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things that he did both in the land of, of the Jews in Jerusalem, and they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that, we, that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And now he's finally getting to the, to the important stuff. It's all important, but this is the climax. Verse 43. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And they're all saved. They hear that. That the one who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins. And immediately, without Peter saying another word, they're going, we believe. Isn't that an amazing thing? I don't know how many people in that house, but man, it was packed out. Let's just say there are 100 people in that house. And they're listening, and they're listening, and they hear, those who believe in Jesus will receive the forgiveness of sins. And everybody in that room is going, I believe that. And boom, man, every one of them receives the Holy Spirit. And Peter's going, really? In the middle of my sermon? Let me, you know. And they just, they didn't, they didn't wait for an invitation. Right in the middle of the sermon, they believe Jesus is the one through whom we have forgiveness of sin. Now, remember, cleansed, but they are not yet forgiven. See the difference? God has said, do not consider unclean what I have cleansed, and I have cleansed the Gentiles without qualification because Jesus paid for the sin of the world. Isn't this what John said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? This is where we get the doctrine of unlimited atonement from. Jesus paid for the sin of the world. This is 1 John 2, 2 where John writes and says that he is the propitiation for the sins of the world. 
Okay, and so that's taken place. And so all have been cleansed in the sense that all have had all their sin paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. But that doesn't mean they have received the forgiveness of sins because that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's verse 43. Through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. See, Cornelius was a good man, a righteous man, but he wasn't a saved man. And that goes back to verse 35. In every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Well, how can he be called a righteous man and he's not yet saved? Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, what that verse says is that man does have a form of righteousness. And as far as men go, apart from God, Cornelius stood out head and shoulders above most. But he was lost. And though he had a form of righteousness, it, was, it falls short of the righteousness of God, of the glory of God. He wasn't saved, and he knew it. That's not to say he wasn't a good man. But he was not a good man where this goodness is derived from a relationship with God. He was good apart from God. And that's never good enough. Because God is the only one who is truly good. And I may be good in relation to other people. That's not enough. My goodness, my righteousness has to be derived from God. And it's only in Christ that a person is truly righteous. Cornelius knew that. So, it is through believing in Jesus that a person receives the forgiveness of sins. This is why I'm making a distinction this morning between being cleansed and being forgiven. Because God has cleansed all. There is no condition on being cleansed. You don't even have to believe it. It is simply true. But there is a condition upon being forgiven, and that is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive the forgiveness of sins. Now, just to wrap up the passage, and and we're out of time. It says... Verse 44, while he was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all of those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. And again, this is not to say that all people, when they get saved, are going to speak in tongues. It's not saying that. There's nothing in the text that indicates that. This is just showing the continuity between the Jewish people being saved, the Samaritans being saved, and the Gentiles being saved. It's one work of God. Verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for those to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as you as we did, can he? And this is another important passage. This shows us that water baptism follows salvation. It is not a component to being saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall receive the forgiveness of sins. 
Water baptism is absolutely separate from salvation. It doesn't contribute to your salvation. It is simply an expression of it. Just like communion is a visual, visual expression of our communion with God. And baptism is a visual expression of our having been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Why weren't they asked to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit like Matthew 28 says? I don't know. Okay, so that's a landmine I'm not going to step on today. Now, let me go back and just wrap it up with a few observations. Number one, does God hear the prayers of unbelievers? God heard Cornelius' prayers. I'm amazed when I hear Christians say, God does not hear the prayers of unbelievers. Do you not have chapter 10 in your Bible? God hears the prayers of unbelievers. He is an all-knowing God. There is nothing that happens that God doesn't know, including the prayers of unbelievers. Now, if you mean, does God answer all the prayers of unbelievers? And the answer is no. But if you mean that God doesn't even know, or God never answers the prayers of an unbeliever, that's wrong. God hears the prayers of unbelievers. Number two, clearly God seeks after the lost. God seeks after the lost, and God sought after Cornelius. We know from John 12, 32, Jesus says, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And God draws all to himself. But not only does God seek after the lost, but God also seeks after the saved. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, If any one of my sheep from this fold strays away, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. He's not talking about unsaved people in Matthew 18. He's talking about saved people. Sheep. His sheep. So praise God. He not only seeks after the lost, but he also seeks after saved people who are straying. The biggest point that I made for the first part of this sermon is spiritually dead people are not corpses. They are not cadavers. They do have ability to respond to God. They have the ability to believe in Him. Absolutely every time in Scripture there are no exceptions. Faith precedes salvation. No exceptions. There is not a single time where it says you have to be saved in order to believe. It always says, believe, and you shall be saved. Or believe, and you shall receive the forgiveness of sins. We know from Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear unless someone tells them? Why didn't the angel tell Cornelius how to get saved? Angels never do. Apparently, they have no right it is out of their jurisdiction. It is not in their job description for an angel to tell a person how to be saved. That's our job description. That's our jurisdiction. And I believe from God's word there is never anyone who ever gets saved without human agency somewhere along the line. Either a track has been left behind. Heard of a guy one time that um, purchased one of Ian Thomas's books, The Saving Life of Christ didn't like it, threw it in a dumpster. 
And another guy went dumpster diving, happened to be in that dumpster, found this book, read it, got saved. And so Major Thomas used to say, buy my books. You, you know, you may be unworthy of it. That's okay. Just throw it in the dumpster and somebody more worthy than you will come along and get saved. <laughs> now, that Major Thomas wasn't the guy who spoke to that man. But he wrote a book that got thrown into a dumpster. And a man found the book. And he read the book and got saved. Human agency. I don't believe there's ever, ever, a person who is saved simply on the basis of dreams, visions, or angelic visitation. There is always human agency involved, somewhere along the line. Don't be deceived and think otherwise. There are not two works of God, three works of God, four works of God. There's one work of God, one church. We don't have time. I just heard the whistle go off. Read Ephesians chapter 2, that whole chapter. And it's talking about how God has broken down the dividing wall. There is now not two different peoples. There is one people. And that it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are made one. Jew and Gentile are one. If that teaches us nothing else, it teaches us that there is absolutely no place for prejudice, for racial distinction, any other kind of distinction within the body of Christ. We have been made one. And then finally, cleansing from sin is due to Christ's payment for sin. But forgiveness of sin is due to believing in Jesus Christ. And I hope that we are not people who think, unlike Cornelius, that we have received the forgiveness of sin because we've lived religious, moral lives. You can be a very religious person, a very moral person, and not know the forgiveness of God, not have eternal life, because you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. I'll close this in prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've accomplished for us. It is a finished work. Our sin was paid for long before we ever believed. I thank you for your work in our hearts to draw us to yourself. And I thank you, God, that the only thing that you're looking for is just to believe you. To believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is our Savior. The one who has not only paid for our sin, but secured our forgiveness. And who is offering us eternal life. And I pray, God, that we would be clear on this. That the work is finished. And the only thing that you require is faith. And that is not a work that no man could boast. In Jesus' name, amen.